Welcome to Focused on Forward. The purpose of this podcast is to focus on recovery from life situations, be it a disease, chronic or acute, perhaps the loss of someone so dear to you in death, or a change of life patterns that has affected you so profoundly that you have no choice but to find your new normal and become focused on moving forward. Each episode is designed to show the positivity that people bring to each and every one of their stories, the successes they've had, ways that they have become so definitively focused on moving forward. We look forward to sharing their stories, and we hope that they inspire you just as much as they have inspired us. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Season 3 of Focused on Forward. I've had the pleasure of two seasons of talking to some amazing guests, people who have overcome some serious triumphs uh, and tragedies in their lives, the ways and, and means that they've pushed forward and they've continued on in their life. There's nothing short of heroic. Season two ended with a discussion with Dr. Alex Hershaft, a survivor of World War II's Holocaust. He recounts the loss of family and friends while living in Warsaw, Poland, the hate that he saw every day and how that led to other decisions he made later on in life. Today, we're going to start season three, identifying another form of hate and how we as human beings, no matter what race, creed, nationality, or religion we are, ways that we can identify hate, we can move forward with it in our life and find ways to be happy. And so I'm very pleased and honored to have Roselle Jones and Daniel Abbott with me today. And we're going to talk about a book that they wrote together, a book called Wounds. Gentlemen, welcome to Focused on Forward. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Tim. Yeah, I'm, I'm real excited to have you guys here. So uh, a little bit of background, uh, the, the book Wounds that they wrote about, a lot of the stories and things that they wrote about uh, come from the area in which I currently live. I live in the northwestern area of Michigan that this book is written about. Uh, for a time, Daniel and I went to high school together. And uh, before he moved up to uh, White Cloud, uh, he was in Nuevo High School uh, with me as well. Um, and I've gotten to know Roselle over the last year and, or so uh, th through the graces of social media. So uh, it's, it's been a nice introduction and I've gotten an opportunity to know him a little bit. So gentlemen, uh, if you would please take us through the background of this book. What was the impetus for it? How did we get to a point where this book, uh, the stories that you tell, you felt was now was the time to tell and share? Well, I can uh, I can start by saying the the book chose us. We didn't really there wasn't any, anything strategic about it. We were in the middle of the pandemic and we witnessed the the hate crime against Ahmad Arbery and then the execution, the public execution of George Floyd. And I know for me, when, when I witnessed that police officer's knee on George Floyd's neck, I mean, we all saw the video, but right. for me, the image of that video, just, it wouldn't leave me alone, you know, for, for days and for a couple weeks, the, the image kept playing in my mind and I was seeing my son's beneath that knee my friends beneath that knee 
my family members beneath that knee. And it was very much for me a call to action. And I did the foolish thing, you know, in hindsight. And I took the social media and I started addressing some of the some of the issues that were going on and sharing some of my experiences. And at the same time, Rajel, who, as you'll learn after you read the book, is is both a, a lifelong friend and also happens to be my brother-in-law. We're married to sisters. So we we know we've known each other through the years on on several different levels. And we trust each other on several different levels as well. But sure. We uh we both became vocal on social media at the same time. Which, I, I was foolish too. Yeah. Right. <laughs> which is uh, completely out of character us for character for us. Really. We, we're very private people and we choose to have these conversations and we've been having these conversations with friends and family, you know, privately for a really long time. But after George Floyd, it became an anger that became a desperation that became a, what can we do? And I looked at myself and, and I was like, I'm a writer, you know, I've experienced a lot of hate based situations throughout the, the course of my life. And it was time to write. And at the same time, Rajel uh, has spent the last what 10 15 years working as a diversity equity and inclusion professional and it just it came together that i was going to bring my professional expertise and rajel was going to bring his and we decided to collaborate on what we originally thought was going to be a collection of essays uh sharing our experiences but about what Raj, two, three weeks into our process, we realized that we didn't have uh, a collection of essays on our hand. We had um, a very collaborative, weird, memoirish piece that the characters in my life and the characters in his life overlapped in a way that the book had a little bit more cohesiveness than we originally planned. And I should backtrack just a little bit. Um, when when we got vocal on social media, uh, a writer friend that I met on tour for my first book contacted me privately through email and said that he had just formed a publishing company and wanted to get involved in anything that, that me and Rajel decided to do. So we had the book contract, Four Wounds on the Table, before we even uh, oh, wow. started punching the keys. That's and cool. I'm, I'm sure Rajel has something to add to the story as well yeah no i mean not not really the um for me as a black man witnessing uh george floyd ahmaud arbery i mean and then brianna taylor i mean and the list can unfortunately go on and on um right. it was everything that daniel described but also personal relatability um like man uh that could be me and it even went further to um, not to the degree that of what they experienced. I'm still alive. Not to the degree of, degree of what your last guest. It wasn't a Holocaust experience for me, but I've had my own wounds, my own pain, and dealt with 
um, the output of other people's hate um, throughout life to the point where, honestly, and I, I don't know if I've said this, um, but just the thought right now is, is the clarity is to the point where it almost had become and has become normalized, um, where you just kind of find a way to say, yeah, that's just the world we live in. That's just how people are. Um, and, and you kind of even somehow just weirdly and probably inappropriately begin to accept the dysfunction um, of hate. Right. And so um, with that, just mm. wanting, as Daniel said, just wanting to figure, okay, I, I could just talk, I could just post on social media, I could just include this in some uh, speech that I do or some training that I give. But what would impact more on the macro level and um, really to put things down in writing, um, not only is something that is therapeutic um, and, and therapeutic, and I don't mean that that always is cathartic. It doesn't always feel good, um, but right. therapeutic, even in bringing some of those wounds that you've suppressed and repressed um, and bringing those back to the forefront and having to deal with them now that you're in a different phase of life um, is a form of therapy as well. And, and it helps you to stop that practice of normalizing uh, the ridiculous, of normalizing what doesn't actually make sense um, and trying to make excuses and, and, and find ways to cope and to live with it without addressing it. Um, and so um, it felt right, you know, as Daniel and I were talking, as people, people saw our posts, and they saw kind of the interwoven nature of those posts. And they were like, man, you guys should write a book like this. That's the other piece. Um, and, and it, it just felt right. And there's some, some assignments, like Daniel said, the book, the book came, it, it was, it called us. It wasn't like we were like, oh, let's create it. It's like, no, you all, it pulled on us to tell stories sure. that by our natures, as you know, leaning more toward introvert than extrovert for me, and and not even leaning for Daniel, just all the way um, <laughs> introvert uh, for him. These person now he'll fictionalize a character and tell a story about someone else, and there will be aspects and elements of his experience in it. Sure, but to actually have to sit here and write a nonfiction uh, piece that tells what he went through, and for me. Um, who has practiced overcoming, who has practiced not allowing other people's hate uh, to become my burden, uh, to stop and to really process all of that from, I think the first chapter of the book, I think it was, I was like eight years old or something like that, to process that many years of my life publicly um, and to share that with, I don't know who, with whoever may happen to uh, read a copy or hear us talk about the book um, was uh, a nightmare at the same time as necessary. <laughs> oh man. And that, that combination right there, there are sometimes that thing you, you might be terrified to do something, but when it's something that you feel called to do, when it's something that's drawing on you um, many times, it's something that could not be there without you. This wounds could not have existed without Daniel having every experience that Daniel's had without me having every experience that I've had. And so it pulled those things out of us that we might've even preferred 
to keep within us. Um, and so it was birth through pain. It was birth through uh, the pain that came from seeing these people who experienced these unnecessary murders, um, like Ahmad, like George Floyd, where uh, it, it, it hit a button within us to say, okay, no, it's time for action. And so that, that's what this was birthed out of. Okay. So a, a couple of things uh, coming just from your, both of your statements there. Uh, Razel, you mentioned something about um, the fact that it, we, we've gotten to a state where we normalize hate. And you know, it's one of the things I actually, I was talking about this with somebody the other day about how that is, that is something I see all the time, especially even in family relations and friend relations and commun- in communal relations around the county and things like that, where it's just like, oh, well, that's just, that's just how people are nowadays. You know? And it's unfortunate that, that that's seen as something that should be okay and overlooked and, and that there's not a necessity of change there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really saddens me, actually, that people can't see the need to, to move outside of that. But, uh, but also, I want to ask you both, you both mentioned this, I want to, I want to ask you both. You both said that in your foolishness, you took to social media. So what was foolish about going to social media to express your voice at a time when you felt pain? I'll start on this one. Um, This is my perspective. And it does not mean that my perspective is right. Like, what's the sure. what's the thing that we say? My views don't represent the views of whatever. Um, <laughs> That's my disclaimer at the media, end. So yeah, we get it. right, right. <laughs> social media for me, it's not real. <laughs> um, it's it is this um, designed world, um, and so if I really want to solve a problem. Um, I'm my my character is okay. I need to tackle it head on. I need I need to sit down with you and have a conversation. Um, not just post my random thoughts and throw them uh, out there, hoping that they stick to someone. Um, I believe in targeted uh, solutions to problems, and social media is like it's it's not necessarily a place to solve the world's problems. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe it can impact them at some times, but I don't think that's even what it's really designed for. Um, and the other problem I have with, with social media is that, um, there's too many opportunities, uh, for one-sided dialogue, um, and, and for misinterpretations of thought. Not to mention, I could go on and on. Like, I can give you reason after reason why I feel like that was probably a foolish approach for me. In the heat of the moment, it is, it's the wrong time for me to post um, when I have a lot of emotions happening. I haven't had time to process and to properly craft my words, um, to think about the alternate uh, perceptions that people may have in spite of whatever my intent was. Um, and the negative impact that some words could have, especially when taken out of context. Sure. Um, and so it's just not a beast that I like to use to address real problems. So I'm, I, I'll leave it there. And I'm sure Daniel could probably go on just as long as I just did from his own. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just add that. I mean, in, in general, social media is full of people that want to talk but don't want to listen. Sure. And 
I can't think of a single social media argument that I've either participated in or witnessed where anyone's mind was changed. Mm-hmm. You just, you don't have the space to really articulate what, what you want to say or tell your story or share your experiences. And people on social media are, and I, I hate to generalize, but in general, they're lazy readers. So <laughs> they're cherry picking what you're saying so they can pick it apart and win the argument. The, the goal is not to come to a truth together. The goal is to win your case in a court of law on social media. And I, I mean, for example, I I posted a very long post on Facebook this morning about uh, COVID. And I felt the need to preface my post by saying I'm politically independent and I don't have an agenda. And like I had to give all these all these statements before I even... All these clarifiers. Yeah. Yeah. I had, to, I had to clarify it because I know people will jump on and, and say, oh, you're pushing a liberal agenda. No, I'm I'm not a liberal. You know, I'm telling you as a human being that I know 100 other human beings that have lost family members. You know, this right. is not a hoax. I, I'm not saying this in a political way, but I I felt the need to justify my statement before I made my statement on social media. And I think there are people on social media that do make a difference. I just don't think that is my space to make a difference. And for me, you know, like, like me and Rajel talk about often, we're, we're sharing our stories and wounds. You can't tell me that I'm wrong. That didn't happen to me when I tell you my story and I tell you how my story affected me and affected the people I love, you know, that's not a thing that's debatable. So we found that using long form, if, if you will, and sharing our stories, people are more receptive to it. And we're able to actually make a difference with our stories. Whereas in social media, I might get 150 people who already agreed with me, agreeing with me again. I'm not affecting the people that need to actually be affected on social media. And I'm susceptible like I was this morning. You know, you live in Nuevo, so you know what's going on with the Villarreal family right now. Yeah. I was just, I'm looking at my feed and I'm just seeing all these people that still think COVID's a hoax. And I'm seeing all these other people that, are losing loved ones. And I'm just like, how do you reconcile these, these two great differences? There's such a discrepancy in reality. And, and what's sad is eventually when you're confronted with it yourself and in your family and the people that you love, you know, is, is too late. You were already reckless. Right. And no, we're not here to talk about COVID. I know I'm just, Thinking about social media, it's a good example of no, but the it's, extremes it, that you get and the way people get stuck in being right rather than doing what's right and coming to a truth together. No, you're you're right. We weren't here to talk about COVID, but they are relatable topics because there's there's people who feel like they're on the right or wrong side of it, no matter which way you go. And it's the same thing could be said for race and race relations, that people feel that they're on the right side of it, even if they're on the wrong side. 
and that, you know, they're going to, they're going to plant that, you know, they're, that they always say, that's the hill that I'm going to die on, you know, and that, and so it's the same can be said for both sides. Um, but I see your point as far as, you know, maybe being the foolish thing to do, because, you know, as you were talking, Rachel, I was thinking about how, you know, uh, even with just texting my wife, sometimes, uh, that can be uh, a fool's errand, a little bit dangerous at times. She's going to listen to this. I'm going to be in so much trouble for that. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, just because you can't infer tone in, in a text mm-hmm. message, you can't infer tone in, in a, a social media setting. You're going to read that in the framework and the mindset that you read it in, you know, that that's how it's going to be. So if you were angry when you read that social media post, you're going to read it as angry. Um, no matter. And so no matter what good sense or points you put in it, I could see how that could those could be overlooked uh, because people are like Daniel said, are going to cherry pick what they want to get out of it. So, okay. That makes Just a little one more, more sense. Quick, one more quick thought. Yeah, there. please. Um, in addition, like m- many, not all, but many people uh, use social media and they weaponize it. The, the interesting thing, Tim, when you were talking, like when you compare it, like, you know, it's the way with COVID it's the way with, um, race. It's so true. And the, that's so problematic for me because we have politicized these topics. It's like, how do you politicize certain topics? Like my, my melanin count really isn't a political uh, <laughs> topic. It shouldn't be. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it hasn't become that, but it really, it doesn't really rise to that level. It, it didn't have to. Um, and, you know, even with, with a, an illness, like the fact that it has become like you're on the right or the left with an illness, I don't, it, it just doesn't jive for, for my mind and kind of the systematic way that I think. Um, and I so then when you put certain things on social media, it, others, even if you aren't intending to, others will weaponize like, oh, I, crazy. I had a similar experience this morning, Daniel, I just posted and this, I, I felt so bad that I sat here and I really had to, I self edited as I posted just to say, Hey, I'm praying for people at Oxford high school and the surrounding community. I can't imagine um, how they felt when they woke up this morning. But the problem is I sat there and did about three iterations of that post because my mind went to, Oh man, there's some people who are going to say, uh, your prayers don't bring anybody back. Uh, there's some people, and it's like, so, so should I just not say anything like, or, or is it okay for me to be human and say what I felt? Um, and the, the, the fact of the matter that I really was sitting there considering, like, should I say it? It just feels gross to me. And that's why social media is not my preferred method of communication. I want to be able to not just say whatever I want and spew things out of my mouth. No, I'm, I care about people and I I believe myself to be a fairly empathetic person. Um, So it's not just because, Oh, this cancel culture. No, 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 no. It's, but the fact of the matter is that I don't want to have to be so suppressed where just a basic sentiment will be critiqued and people will weaponize their thoughts against my thoughts. Whereas like, well, I wasn't shooting a weapon at you. I was just saying what, what came to my mind. So yeah, understood. Yeah, no, I get that. That makes sense, especially with you know with what you said of what's going on over in, in the Detroit area right now. That's uh, with the Oxford school shooting. That's that's very much so. I mean, that's social media is littered with posts. Uh, you know, 
one shooting a comment off one way, one shooting a comment off the other way. But let's talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about your guy's story and and the getting to the portion of 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 wounds. So let's go back to your guys' childhood. And I wanted I was wondering, and I know that it's mentioned in in the book. Uh Rajal, you mentioned it as and I, th- I believe Daniel does too. But the first time that you realized that there were differences between yourself and the community around you. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and that there were, there were people of other races and nationalities. What was that experience like for you? And how did it have an impact and how you then viewed the world? Yeah, I can, I'll start that. I mean, even beyond, there are points in the book where I go back even to kindergarten. um, And it's not that I was not cognitively developed to the point where I'm recognizing, oh, this is a social construct that has me different than everyone else. But even as an uh, innocent child, it's like, everybody else's skin looks different than mine. Um, you know, I was one of two African-Americans in, in my grade. Um, and so just that awareness, it didn't, it didn't mean, I don't think it meant much of anything to me at that particular moment. But as the years progressed, I think, uh, again, that first chapter that I, that I wrote in the book called um, I'm Definitely Different, um, right. told the story of going to a, a lifelong friend's home, a white guy, um, and just beginning to see all of these differences. It wasn't all the racial differences. Some of it were familial differences. Some was stylistic. And that's the nuance. That's the complexity of, of difference. It's not just one thing, um, but it could be, you know, my family does things different than someone else's family or uh or it can be racial so sometimes it's race sometimes it isn't sometimes it's region whatever it might be there's all these differences religion uh belief systems all of this stuff um and just beginning though like that visit i spent the night at his home um and began to realize oh their family has a lot of similarities to me, but also a lot of differences. They, the way they deal with their pet is different than the way my family dealt with my pet. Um, the way they uh, referred to what we were going to eat at nighttime, I didn't know what supper was. Um, we called it dinner. So supper, I was like, what is that? Um, and just this, the list goes on, just uh, things that I began, the way that my friend spoke to his parents and didn't get knocked down. Um, that was different to me. It was, it was just different. Um, and again, that's not all racial because I know uh, some of my friends, white parents would have also knocked him down. So it's, it's not. And so that's the complexity. Um, you know, what is race? What isn't race? What's a social construct? Construct? What's a reality? Um, <laughs> all of the, all of this stuff. And, and then even if it is a social construct, uh, what does that mean? And and I still have to live within the confines of that social construct. So how do I navigate it um, successfully uh, appreciating who I am and who I'm not um, and, and just the complexity of all these things. So I began to realize I was narrative at a very, I was different, I'm sorry, at a very young age and began, uh, and I think that just grew over the years and it still grows. Um, I'll still come into situations where I'm thinking I'm doing what is, quote, normal, end quote, which doesn't exist, talk about a social construct, um, <laughs> doing what, what I perceive to be normal. And I'll find out, oh, this other person thinks that what I think is normal is completely abnormal. What I think is abnormal, someone else thinks is normal. It's, 
it's a twisted social construct of reality that we still have to learn how to navigate. Um, and so, yeah, I, I realized very young that I was different. Um, and that's where some of those self-serving tools began to, to enter in so that I could operate and figure out, okay, so how can I, how can I navigate this situation successfully even though I am different? Is it bad that I'm different? Is it good that I'm different? And just that whole developmental process of figuring those things out, it started, I think it starts for most people who are the only whatever. Like I was the only black kid in most of my classrooms. Um, you, you notice quicker uh, when you aren't in the position of majority. Um, and I think I, I noticed at a very young age, and some people even doubt that, We've had people read it like, no, oh, there's no way that you realize that at a young age. Um, the people who tell me that don't tend to have the same experience that I've had. Um, and so, you know, Daniel mentioned earlier, no one can tell us that our story and our thoughts about what we experience are wrong. Well, people still try. People still try that. And so it's just interesting um, at a very early age, as a person of difference, as a person who is different than the majority of people around you, you can't help but start noticing, ah, I'm different. Yeah, well, even for, I'll go ahead, Tim. I was just gonna say I I can I can can in a way relate to that because when I now when I was a young man we moved from uh, the Howell, Michigan area, which was uh, quite like Nuevo County area, very white, uh, you know, middle Midwestern family uh, setting. Uh, we moved to Muskegon, and I went to Muskegon Public Schools, and when I came into my first grade class. Uh, I, I was used to all white classes, you know, because that's the area that I had grown up in uh, up to that point. And the class that I went into was pro approximately 75 to 80% African-American and Latino. And, you know, so here's blonde haired, blue eyed, very pasty white Tim uh, looking around the classroom going and so yeah so yeah at a young age you can notice that there's differences and you see that there's you know that there's there's there are all these other kids don't look like you anymore and so the trying to you know so yeah so for me trying to figure out what was different why it was different you know uh there was there was some questions there that that uh you know fortunately we, i had some very loving family members and and friends of family uh that that uh lived right across the street from us and uh, her name was Zadie and I love Zadie, uh, rest in peace. But, uh, uh, you know, she, she, she was a very sweet woman, answered a lot of questions very lovingly, very patiently of a, of a very confused little white boy. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, Daniel. That's, that's beautiful. I'm, I'm glad that you, you had that experience both in being the only one in that situation and then have a black woman treat you with love and kindness while you were going through it, you know, that, that that's where it begins is, is with that love. And that's mm -hmm. when you learn that, that diff being different is okay. And I mean, my journey is somewhere in between your, your extreme and Rajel's extreme. I, I grew up in a really diverse neighborhood in Grand Rapids and in my neighborhood, difference was normal. My, I grew up around black people, white people, Hispanic people, Asian people. The, the apartment complex that I lived at was kind of like a, a transitional place. I can't remember how I referred to it in the book, but 
everyone was there waiting for their next move, whether it was to buy a house to get through college, but there were a lot of young parents with young kids and we all played together and, and it was normal. My, my best two friends growing up, one was black and the other one was half Korean, half white. And when I went to their house to, to have a meal or to spend the night, I was treated with love, was treated with kindness. And when they came to my house, they were treated the same way. So I grew up in a, a very diverse nurturing environment. And then as a 14 year old boy, I got dragged kicking and screaming to Nuevo County. And you're welcome. <laughs> that was, that was when I learned firsthand that difference wasn't necessarily good to all people. And right. As, as you'll read in the book, that's that's where my first confrontation, I guess, with racism be, began because I didn't grow up that way in Grand Rapids. I grew up in a very, a very natural, nurturing kids playing, getting to know each other. It it wasn't a race thing; it was an interest thing. You know, if you liked right. basketball, you hung out with kids that played basketball. If you liked science and video games and you hung out with those kids uh, your skin didn't matter as much because when you when you grow up in a, a naturally diverse area those are the kind of things that matter and you know it speaks a lot to to how we should live because if we grow up together and Rajel mentions it in the book and in one of the early chapters when when your kids all that matters is playing and having fun it, it doesn't matter what the person looks like. It doesn't matter how rich their parents are or, or your differences. What matters is you come together and you have fun with your kids. And if you grow up learning those values naturally, instead of having to take a class or having to have people like me and Rajel let you know that there's a lot of people in this world that are at a disadvantage and aren't living by the same rules that you are, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people that have grown up in a very comfortable situation in a homogenous community where the things that they did were normal and acceptable. And, you know, they didn't have any disruption when it comes to people having differing opinions and religions and skin colors and in ways of going through this world. So yeah, that my, my culture shock was definitely in Nuevo County in a <laughs> school full of people that look just like me. Understood. Yeah. I remember when you came to Nuevo schools, mm. I do. Cause you know, here comes this, this tall, skinny kid, shaved head. Okay. Always had a basketball with him everywhere. I never saw you without a basketball, dude. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and basketball shorts and a hoodie every day. Didn't matter yeah. if it was 100 <laughs> degrees out or if it was 20 degrees out. He could, he'd have on basketball shorts and hoodie. But, but you know, um, yeah. So I can understand how that could be a, you know, now knowing a little bit more of your background, how that was a culture shock because that was certainly not the environment that we had uh, when we were going to high school, uh, for sure. So looking back on these these things that we see as we're growing up and and we see the, the way that that different races operate and not only just inside of their own communities but it, the way they interact with one another 
how have you seen race impact your personal life and maybe even your professional life, your career? I can go. Um, <laughs> uh, race has impacted every every nook and cranny uh, of my my life and professional career. Um, I think that there were times that it wasn't that big of a deal to me um, when I didn't understand the complexity of the context in which I was birthed, uh, didn't, didn't understand um, how precious uh, the opportunities that I had were and what it took uh, for the generations who preceded me to uh, create those opportunities and those avenues for opportunities for my life. Um, you know, as a child, you're developing, you don't know, you don't know what you don't know. Um, and so it wasn't always that important to me at the forefront. But even then, it was often important and at the forefront of others' minds, um, whether that was teachers and staff um, or, co you know, my students, my peers. Um, it was, it's one of those things that even if you're not constant, if you're not constantly thinking about it, you're constantly reminded of your difference. Um, and so the book details a lot of incidents and experiences where, um, whether I was interested in recognizing, uh, the beauty of my difference <laughs> or not other people absolutely recognized it and didn't necessarily recognize it as beautiful. Um, and so the constancy of being aware of your otherness, your difference um, has a lot of impact. Uh, so the book details a lot of painful experiences, a lot of um, racially insensitive names, derogatory terms, um, experiences where adults were discriminatory of me as a child. Um, it details a lot of that. And, and so to get to the second half of your question, well, the second aspect of it, the professional nature of it, it took having all of those negative experiences. Um, what I did not know is that it was developing skills and abilities in me um, through the pain, the wounds were working to create ability, to create empathy, to create an understanding of what it is like to be other, of what it is like um, to know how to kind of function in at least two worlds, uh, the Black world and the white world. It was my weekend world and my weekday world. Um, and learning how to navigate, how to code switch, um, how which I, I don't have such a, a care to do as much anymore in my life. But even learning that, learning that I don't care, even though I have the ability, I don't really want to do that in most situations. Learning how to be proud of my heritage while being respectful of others, to be proud um, and firm in my belief system 
while also appreciating that someone else's belief system, which may differ from mine, is theirs just like mine is mine. Um, and recognizing that we are better together, that we're, in our areas where we're the same, we can build synergies. In our areas where we're different, we can build complementary partnerships. Recognizing that it all that we're better together, that, that our difference is beautiful, um, that I'm better when I have someone who has a different perspective than me with me uh, so that I can see a broader picture with more depth and breadth um, and I can understand reality better than I could if I only saw it through my, my limited set of eyes of my experience, um, of my, my identity. Um, we're better together. We're better. Um, we have complementary natures if we can learn how to allow our differences to be a, a benefit and an asset rather than a liability. Learning that, walking through that process, still learning that, not you never arrive, right? Uh, allowed me to begin to figure out, oh, I know how to do some things that a lot of other people don't. Um, I know how to be a bridge um, rather than a wall. Man, I know how to uh, acknowledge different perspectives and different identities and different people um, and it'd be okay uh, that it's different and to find a way to bridge those so that we can find a way to positively interact and use our differences as an asset rather than a liability, which led me to a professional career where I'm trying to help build that perspective um, in businesses, where I'm trying to build that perspective in individuals, where I'm trying to help people to be more culturally intelligent and be able to be comfortable uh, navigating difference, navigating uh, and functioning in an environment where they may or may not be of the majority. Um, and we all have those experiences where we pop in and out of being majority. Uh, but some people completely shut down uh, when they are not in a position where they are the majority and they miss out. Uh, instead of being contributors, they become hiders. And so just trying to help people to recognize the beauty of our differences, to recognize they have something that someone else doesn't, and to be, be confident and courageous uh, to bring your perspective, to bring your identity, uh, to bring your difference forward uh, in a positive way so that it can work with someone else's identity and difference and perspective to create something better than it would have been created independently. Wonderful. Yeah. For for me, my my racial journey has has been a three part journey. The first part was normalcy in in Grand Rapids in a diverse neighborhood I, that I referenced earlier. Growing up around people who were different than me and it being okay, it being acceptable, it being good. And for those of you that that haven't read the book yet, when I moved to Nuevo about a month maybe two months into the school year my two best friends uh matt and larry came to visit me for the weekend and we were downtown nuevo dribbling our basketballs you know doing what teenage boys do and the next monday at school i was confronted at my locker and another student asked me who is the shadow following me around that weekend and I had no idea what he was talking about. And he said that N word. And 
and the word just it threw me because I, I didn't grow up around that word that's not a word that anyone in my family used that's not a word that I heard in my neighborhood it's just it was a shock to hear that word and after that day at Nuevo I became N lover I became white mm. N I became wigger yeah there was a, a group of seniors in a um in a government class down the down the hallway toward um that old football coach's name. What, what's his name? Grasic. Grasic. Down by Grasic's uh, classroom. They would hit me over the head with their newspapers when they were getting out of class. I was just a little dude when I was a freshman, five foot three, about 115 pounds. And I dealt with all that racial crap the entire year and the next couple of years I grew and I got angry and my junior year in high school someone called me that word again and I was in handcuffs in the principal's office arrested for assault and battery and I went to my parents and and I told them I'm not going back to that school period so whatever you want to do, then that's it, fine. And my mom ended up signing over custody to Diane Cartwright, uh, a woman who lived in White Cloud. She was a black woman and someone that I had gotten to know through uh, her nephew, Stevie, and her daughters, Latrice and Crystal. Crystal was uh, Rachel's girlfriend in high school. And I moved in with a black family when I was 17 years old, during a time when I was angry and confused, I was being, I was going through racial things that weren't natural for a, a white person to go through. I was questioning what it meant to be white, what it meant to be white and have black friends, what it meant to be white and love black people. And for years and years, I wrestled with my identity and my role in this world and, and everything else. So part two of my racial journey, uh, we can call confusion. You know, age 17 to probably 20, 22. And fast forward 20 years, and I'm married to a Black woman. I have eight biracial children. And I'm entirely comfortable for the first time in my life everything that I've been through has prepared me to be a father to all eight of these children to be a husband to my wife and to share my stories and my experiences which you know career-wise I I stumbled across this book I didn't choose this book I wouldn't have chosen this book this book in, I mean, to say it simply was, it was my responsibility to write as a white man. You know, Rajel has been dealing with this since he came out of his mother's womb. And black people have been fighting this fight for 300 years. They've been screaming and screaming and screaming and not, and not been heard. So as a white man who has the privilege of walking through life as a white man, I, I get to go out and be white by myself. 
I know what it's like to go out into the world as a white man. I also know what it's like to go out in the world holding Vanessa's hand or to go out in the world with my biracial son sitting on my shoulders. I, I see the looks change. I see the, the condensation, you know, whether, whether it's, oh, I'm such a kind, kind white man for doing the right thing and taking care of this little black boy or whether it's the contempt, like how dare you be married to a black woman? How dare you take one of ours? You know, I've had the, the privilege and horror of experience in both sides of it. And for me to share my stories and for me as a white man to stand with my brother, Rajel, as a black man and us to do this book together was so necessary and, and so important because it's not like other books. It's not just a white confession and it's not just a black plea for help is both at the same time. And I think it it gives undeniable credibility to the subject to have a white man and a black man that come from completely different backgrounds that have ended up in the same place doing it together. And no one else could have written this book but Rajel and I the way that we did it. And because of that, and because we both accepted the responsibility and put our own lives on pause. I, I write fiction. That's that's where I like to, that's my sweet spot, my comfort zone. And Rajel deals with this systemically, this, this stuff on a regular basis. And for, for him to step out and share a more personal part of himself and to do it by writing and being creative and stepping out into the literary world, you know, it was a scary journey for him as well. But we don't regret it. We, we, we're very proud of what we produced. And if you ask, if you would have asked me a year ago, would we be speaking to Michigan state governments? Would this book be in White Cloud High School at Grand Valley State University? And I'd be not sitting in my hoodie writing novels, but speaking to people and, and not being introverted. I, I would have told you you were crazy, but you know, when, when you accept a calling and you accept purpose, one thing I've learned in this process is do not expect it to be comfortable because it's not going to be anything worth doing is going to demand you to grow. And, and I think we both have doing this book together and, you know, it's, it's been quite the ride. Well, you guys should be proud of it. It's, it's a very good book. It's a very powerful book. Um, I think if you're going to sit down and read it, and I encourage everyone, as a matter of fact, I'll have a link uh, in this, the show notes down below where you can find this book on Amazon. Please go buy the book, support these, these great men, what, they're, what they've done. It's a five-star rated book on Amazon, deservingly so. Um, but I wanted to read one of the uh, reviews to you guys. And now it's, on, it's actually on the back cover of the book. I, I just to me, this kind of sums up everything that people need to know about your book. And I'm hoping that this, if, they, if they're not already convinced that this is a book that they need to be reading to, to understand the experience that you, that you both went through and how this can help us moving forward, I think this will. It says, Wounds is a must read for every American of every color. Rachel Jones, a black man, and Daniel Abbott, a white man, share their stories of race, family, resistance, 
loss, violence, overcoming, and love with astonishing grace and candor. Whether it's Abbott exhorting white Americans that they can no longer look away from our nation's systemic racism, or Jones insisting that beauty and righteousness reside not in our similarities, but our differences. This book is both a clear-eyed testament and a call to action written by two brothers who know what of they speak. If we allow it, if we don't look away, Wounds is a book that will heal us. And that was written by Connie May Fowler, the author of Before Women Had Wings. And I think that's a beautiful summarization of your book. Um, so uh, although they can't see me because this is an audio only podcast, I'm giving you guys some applause here because it's it's uh, very well done, very well written. And I, I think it's an amazing thing. And one of the things that that I wanted to, to highlight uh, Rajel, you said this, um, that you recognize the beauty of your difference. I love that. So, you know, a lot of times when I'm doing these interviews, uh, you know, the people that I'm talking to, they'll see my head not down for a couple minutes because, well, I'm taking notes, um, you know, and I like to highlight certain things that people have said during the interview. And, and that's honestly one of the things that's going to stick out to me because there are, there are such beauties in our differences. And if we take the time to, to accept those things and look at those things, it helps us to be able to get to the next point of our conversation. How do we move forward? You know, because that's, that's the, the nature of this show. We talk about moving forward. So in your opinion, how do we move forward? You want me to go? I'll go. Um, embracing the truth. Uh, recognizing uh, that our own experience is not the only experience uh, and being willing to go outside of your comfort zone uh, to experience something you haven't experienced before, uh, to challenge yourself to see the world through someone else's eyes. Um, and so, and to recognize just what we were just talking about, that what is unique about us is really what matters. <laughs> Um, it's not to be hidden, it's to be celebrated. What's unique about us um, is, is what can bring about change. And so I've really been thinking a lot um, and encouraging people in the organizations that I work with to begin the journey of number one, normalizing difference, uh, number two, valuing difference, and number three, seeking difference to transfer even do a whole paradigm shift in the way that we think um, to begin to recognize that, that we need um, a variety. I, I've said a few times um, that if we only look through our eyes, we only see a limited perspective, but if we are in a circle uh, and if everyone is using their eyes and their perspective to see, then we really begin to see not only the full picture, but the real picture. Uh, we can't see the truth unless we have someone else connected to us that is seeing with us. And so uh, where do we go from here? What do we do? Um, we, and, and people get so hung up on this, especially in our country. Why do we always have to keep talking about this? Why do we always? I wasn't alive when, when slavery existed. Very true. Um, but acknowledging the truth and the reality um, of others' experience, and even of the systems that got us to where we are right now, 
is the first step that we haven't taken yet as a country, as, as people, we have not taken that step of genuinely truthfully acknowledging um, what got us to where we are. Um, and until we do that, we will just continue. And we've seen it. We'll just continue to repeat these cycles. Um, and we'll see things in 2021 and about to be 2022 that we saw in history reports and documentaries um, that were happening in the 60s and 50s and 40s. And, and let's keep on going back in the 1800s. And, and so we've just continued to live this repetitive cycle. Um, and I think much of it is because we have not genuinely acknowledged the truth of how we got here. Um, and so I think that's, that's huge. And then once we, once we do acknowledge that truth, and only then can we really begin to move forward. Okay, good. And, and I'll add, when, when you're the contextual majority, take the time to learn about the people of difference in your group. What, as, as a white man and as white people, what we take for granted is in most contexts, we don't have, we're not aware of our whiteness. In the workplace, we're not aware of our whiteness unless we're, we're in a different setting than what is traditional for an American workforce. A traditional American workforce, you're in a, a majority white context. So when you, when you go to work, you don't have to think about being white. When you go to college, unless you're at an HBCU, you don't have to think about being white. It reminds me of uh, earlier this year, I was in New York for my friend's wedding. Uh, my friend is a Mexican-American from New York, and his wife is an Indian Hindu. So when I showed up at his wedding, I was a contextual minority, and I was very, very aware of my whiteness and my Christianity and all the things that I don't have to worry about in my little bubble of a world. And what we can think about as white people in our contextual majority situations is people of difference always feel like that. They feel like that in the workplace. They feel like that in the university. And what we can do is take the time to learn. Like for me, I, I knew I was stepping into that situation. I knew I was going to a Hindu wedding. So the first thing I did was uh, talk to my friend. Is there anything culturally I need to be aware of? Like, is there any behaviors that I need to avoid so I don't offend anyone? You know, I asked him questions like that. Excellent. So, Excellent. so when I showed up, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be a problem. I wouldn't be, oh, I'm Jesse's white friend, but I would just blend in as, be as, as, as best as I could. And, and I did. And, and I was uncomfortable. You know, you, you put me in a room full of black people and I'm the only white person. I feel normal. I'm, I, I go to a family function on my wife's side of the family. You know, I'm sometimes in that situation, you know, for the last, what, 30 years I've, I've been that in that situation. It's normal to me, but you put me in a, a combination 
Hindu Mexican culture situation, my exposure is, is pretty minimal. So, you know, I, I stepped into that situation, a cultural minority and I, my, my takeaway was, was this as, as white people or any majority culture create a welcoming environment and take steps to learn about the culture, whether it's one person, two people, or 30 people, take the time to learn and don't be so arrogant to expect people just to adapt to the majority norm. You can't, you can't ever create an, a welcoming environment or an equal playing field if you're expecting people to change. People should not have to change you as the majority culture, whether it's 10 people or 200 people should be adaptable and open and loving and empathetic. And doing that in a micro level and doing that in contextual circumstances, I think is a, a good step in the right direction. And obviously it's gonna take a lot more time than probably our lifetime, gentlemen. Unfortunately, but yeah, I think you're correct. So uh, this is a topic, honestly, that we could talk about for hours, and I've enjoyed talking about it with you guys, and I could talk about it for hours with you guys. Um, but I, just one final question. Now, typically, on at the end of every episode, I ask my guests two specific questions, but I'm only going to ask you guys one of those questions because there's two of you here. So looking back over the entirety of your life, the situations you've been in, the wounds that you have experienced. What is the greatest piece of advice that you've been given that helps you get through? I, I can go. Um, sure. I think uh, one thing that was instilled in me by my father um, was that people may see you uh, because you're a black man um, as less than, prove them wrong. People may think that you aren't going to be able to be successful, prove them wrong. People don't believe you have the ability, prove them wrong. And that mantra of proving them wrong, um, I had, I had a, a teacher uh, when I was in high school who told me, you'll never make it through college. Uh, and I am a competitive person by nature. Uh, Daniel can attest to that. Um, I like to win, um, whether it's Monopoly or Spades or sports, whatever, uh, fantasy football, whatever. Um, and I think that 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 driving force, I know people see competition as a negative quality. I don't. I see it as a strength because it's the driving agent uh, for me that pushes me to excel, that pushes me to present the best of me at all times because I want to win. I want, and winning for me is getting the most out of the situation. It is giving my all and finding success at the end of it. And so I don't always win, but I like to win. And uh, that, that mantra of proving someone wrong, like I took that with me, um, that that teacher said that. And I, I don't want to come off like I was innocent in it. I was being a smart aleck little kid, talking <laughs> a lot of stuff to him that I shouldn't have been saying. Um, and so I, I instigated um, <laughs> that, but it still did not merit his response. And as an adult, I hold him to a higher standard. But nonetheless, I was a part of it. Uh, but 
I use that as gasoline. And, and I try to do that with people who don't believe in me, with people who may have hate, with people who prejudge me, whether it's because of the color of my skin or because I'm from a little town. You know, we deal with all this kind of stuff. Um, I try to at all times, I might not say it out loud and they may not know that I'm being competitive, but I'm operating under that notion that my dad instilled in me, that advice that he gave me, prove them wrong. Nice. And that I can't think of a single piece of advice related to race that I've been given over the years. You can just be any, been, any piece of advice. I just, I was just gonna say anything that that's impacted you. That's, that's helped you in your decision-making process as you've gone forward in life. I, I would say my, my father at a really, really young age said something to me and I'm going to have to paraphrase because I don't remember exactly how he said it, but he told me that I could do anything that I wanted to do with my life if I was willing to work hard for it. And like, I believed him. I absolutely believed my dad. And when I was 10 years old, I wanted to go to the NFL. So at 10, at 10 years old, I was setting an alarm clock for five o'clock in the morning and I was running miles before school whether it was snow outside, whether it was raining every single day, he wrote me a little, a little workout with push-ups, sit-ups and all that stuff. Fast forward to when you met me when I was like 14, the, the sport switched to basketball. And you, you mentioned it earlier. You never saw me without a basketball. I slept with it, literally slept with the basketball, dribbled it everywhere. I went, if I was at a store, I was dribbling that ball through my legs. And that work ethic instilled in me at a, a very young age. You know, I, I didn't see a lot, of, a lot of my goals come to fruition, but I came very close to a lot of different things that weren't my path. But when I did find my path, that work ethic never changed. You know, I still set an alarm clock, but now I'm, I'm punching the keys and reading books and and doing things that are more, more suited to, to my, my career, but that work ethic and those words of my dad, you know, I took them to heart and I passed the, the same work ethic onto my children. And, you know, it's, it's a real thing. It, it's a real thing that if you want something, you can't wait for it to fall in your lap. And sometimes it will fall in your lap. Sometimes you'll get an unexpected blessing, but ultimately you got to build the arc, you know, you might, you might be given the instructions, but you got to do the work. You got to build the arc. And, and that's, that's probably the most valuable advice that my dad gave me. My great grandmother gave me the worst advice <laughs> when I was like, when I was like eight years old, she said, she's from Boston. She's like, Danny, the way you deal with a bully is you just punch him in the nose. <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah that that advice I, I also took to heart you believed her too for a while <laughs> <laughs> yeah well hey there's good advice and there's bad advice it affects you both ways <laughs> all right so i have one last question for you guys this actually comes from tommy eslin from the curiosity hour podcast so 
I told Tommy that I was going to be talking with you guys tonight. And I asked him, I said, are there any question that he didn't get to ask you guys last year when you guys were on the curiosity hour podcast. And so if, if you're listening to focus on forward and you haven't caught on yet, you guys need to go listen to their interviews on the curiosity hour podcast. It's hosted by my good buddy, Tommy and his buddy, Danny. Uh, um, they, they do an amazing job uh, on that show. And I've always said that curiosity hour is what I want focused on forward to be when it grows up. Uh, it's, it's an amazing show that they do there, but so this is the question that Tommy has. He said, I'm curious, has their lives or perspectives or hopes changed since they released the book? Absolutely. I'm, uh, so this, this is so multifaceted. Um, I, I will say that, and Rajel mentioned like just the process of writing the book, the vulnerability like to share that that personal personal side of yourself. I, I like to say fiction is like running through the street and nonfiction is like running through the street naked. You know, <laughs> that's the process. You're you're out there. You're any any good nonfiction, you're gonna you're gonna share. Like you're you're really, really gonna share yourself with the reader. Sure. That's that's what we've done here. But as a as a writer and as an introvert to be out speaking to um, we had to do so many different diversity talks, like with the state of Michigan, Michigan government, we did Lara, we did uh, transportation. Who else did we do Rajo? Man, I, I knew you were going to ask me that. And I, I knew I wasn't going to be any help, but probably about six, six different departments within the government. Yeah. And you no, know, I, I deal with, uh, I have general anxiety disorder and I get it in my chest and my stomach. And during the first six months when we got done with my area of expertise and writing the book, we got to step into Rajel's area of expertise and like actually start having these talks. You know, I, I was a, I was an absolute mess. I was handshaking and, and nervous and worried that I was going to go off script a little bit too much. And what I've learned throughout that process is everything that both Rajel and I have been through, like all the pains and all the struggles, what's beautiful about this book and about the ability to share our stories is none of that was in vain. We survived everything that we've been through, and now we're able to share that and influence people and government and institutions and all these doors have opened that I could have never imagined. And a it's, it's given me a lot of healing in my life to be able to not only share my story, but to have it affect people the way that it has. And you know, I, th I think I've, to answer Tommy's question, I've, I've grown more comfortable in this aspect of what Rajel and I have been doing. And it's, it's been a real honor, whereas before it was, the first couple were just like work. Like Rajel was like, here we go. It's game time. I was like, Raj, I think I'm coming down with pneumonia. <laughs> but um. <laughs> But right. that and and also 
um, I, I mentioned in the book, uh, the death of Diane Cartwright and my role in, in helping her son, Denny, get through the funeral and heal. And I had to, writing the book, I had to suppress a lot of the mourning process or before I wrote the book, I had to suppress a lot of the mourning process to, to be solid for Denny. You know, I, I was missing her too. I was, I could have been a mess, but what Denny required of me during that time was to not be a mess, to be solid for him. And writing the book and honoring her memory, you know, I, I had so many moments where I had to go lock myself in the, in the bathroom and, and cry, you know, getting it all out. And that part of it, and for my mental health, it's, it's been so therapeutic. You know, I, I can think about her now and, and smile and honor her and remember her, you know, whereas Wonderful. in the beginning, when, when we just started, when we first started doing these book talks, I don't, how many times did I, I break down and cry with the microphone in my mouth, Raj, you know, yeah. and it's just, it's been such a, such a healing process to, to, to share who she was to me and how she's affected me. And most importantly, and the message that I was really trying to send in this book is unconditional love is the most powerful tool that we have in our toolbox as human beings. And when it happens, when a white woman takes an angry white boy into her house and, and loves her and loves him and, and treats him like her own, you know, that, that that's a beautiful thing. It, it doesn't get much better than that. And to share that story and to honor her memory, you know. That's nice. I just want you to know, you just called Diane Cartwright a white woman and she probably going to come <laughs> from wherever she is in heaven and snatch you up right about now. <laughs> oh, you don't miss a thing, do you, Rajel? No, no, I don't let it go either, do I? <laughs> That's the danger of working with family. Right yeah, there. yeah. We, we are brothers. We're brothers, you know. Now, I'm oh, the big brother. I just got to oh, remind that's clear. that. Every... That's clear. <laughs> yeah. For me, I, I, I share a lot of those sentiments. So much has changed. It's a great question. Thanks, Tommy. Um, uh, so one thing that hasn't changed, unfortunately, I know you didn't ask that, but, you know, we say what we want. Uh, one thing that hasn't changed is the cycle of loss. Um, and so we've dealt with so much death, um, some COVID related, some not even since the publishing of the book. We already were in like in the throes of dealing with it. But, you know, our, both of our, our wives, grandmother, uh, last Christmas, um, she went on to heaven and just so many. I, I don't even want to start, but even just that. And then the different dates recur. And so today, the day of our recording um, is December 1st, and it's my godmother, Lara Jackson's uh, birthday. And so she's been on my mind real heavy all day. So those, yeah, healing has, has, has occurred, you know, like I, I'm with you. I can talk about my brother who I wrote about in the escape chapter um, without breaking down every time. Not every time. <laughs> um, so that's progress, right? But um, the, the saying something along the lines of time heals 
all wounds. Um, I I would add just a little bit of a caveat to that. Um, time used well mm. <laughs> heals all wounds. Um, and I think that writing this book was time used well and was a part of the healing process. Uh, and has it allowed us to uh, memorialize in writing our memories and experiences with some people that we deeply have loved. Um, and so that's time used well. So I think that's one of the things that I think has helped facilitate some healing um, in the process. Um, a lot has changed. I've changed jobs. Uh, but one of the things that I have to thank Daniel for um, is that he absolutely has awakened or woken up. I don't know. I got to work on my grammar with that one. The passion for writing in me again. And I haven't been doing enough of it still, but like it's a desire and ideas come to me and I write them down. I'm like, okay, I got it. And then I'm like, oh, that's a book. And yeah, so I have to really dedicate some time in the middle of jobs and family and homeschool and everything else that we have going on to make that happen, to actualize that. But um, those ideas weren't flowing to me for writing uh, Before Wounds, and they absolutely are now. And one of the things that I, I learned in the process is to take my own instructions, use my own medicine, um, what's good for the goose, good for the gander. Um, what I have to say is valuable. And sometimes, you know, in the midst of, and, you know, people who, people think I'm extremely confident because they see me functioning in certain capacities and they're like, oh man, he's so, he's confident on the way to arrogant. Yeah, but not really. Uh, <laughs> not in real life. I, I, I have learned how to do it anyway which I think is really good advice for somebody who feels like, I don't think I could do whatever it is that you're trying to do. Uh, you may be afraid, you may be fearful, you may be shaking in your boots like Daniel described himself, um, but there is such benefit in just powering through and doing it anyway. And you do nine times out of 10 realize that it was so worth it. And it might not even have been as bad as you thought it was gonna be. Um, and so, um, I'm, I'm, I'm learning to value my experience and my voice more since we wrote the book um, and realizing that there are some things that I say that I think are common knowledge. I think everybody would know um, that people are like, whoa, that's really insightful. I haven't seen it. I didn't see it like that before you said it. Um, and so, yeah, I would challenge everybody to, to do that same thing. What you have is valuable. It's, it's what I said all throughout the book. You know, our differences are beautiful. Like, bring what you have to the table. Um, it, it's, you know, I'm a first partaker of that, and I have to remember that. Excellent. So, everybody, we have had the pleasure of listening to, to Daniel Abbott and Rajel Jones uh, for the last little bit, talking about their book, Wounds, the experiences that they've, they've gone through as young men in northwestern Michigan, and how those experiences with racism have adjusted their lives their viewpoints, their perspectives, and how they are helping us all to acknowledge that our differences are a beautiful thing. And so I encourage you all to go look in, in, at the link in the show notes below, go to amazon.com, buy the book, support these, these fine authors and what they're doing here and how they're trying to help 
us as a community, as humankind, grow closer together. So uh, we'll leave you with that. Thank you for listening. This has been Focused on Forward. Well, that concludes another episode of Focused on Forward. To be a guest of Focused on Forward, you can reach us through Twitter at podcastfof, through our Facebook page named Focused on Forward, or through email focusedonforward at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing each and every one of your stories that has yet to be told. So until then, be safe, be kind, and be loving to one another as you stay focused on forward.